0: Good morning. Welcome to a special day for pediatric surgery. Today is the day where our lectureship honors the father of pediatric surgery in Hartford. But first, I have one announcement. Please join us tomorrow, May 5th, for the Decolonizing Global Health. You can look under um, the EEDS uh, portal under live events to join this uh, great um, symposium. Um, I'd like to introduce my partner today who's going to introduce our um, fantastic speaker. Uh, most of you know Dr. Campbell. He is our Donald Height Endowed Chair, and he is uh, spearheading and leading surgical quality and uh, safety for our institution. He's been doing a fantastic job and is also leading the way for us getting our children's verification site. Uh, without further ado, here is Dr. Campbell.
1: Thanks, Chris. Um, it, it's always a pleasure to um, have an opportunity to introduce a, a friend and mentor who's here uh, this year to give the um, Cook Lectureship. Let's see if I can get the slides to advance here. So uh, Ron Cook, uh, as some of you may know, was Hartford's first pediatric surgeon. Um, he uh, w- would was really a leader in the area of children's surgery at a time when it wasn't always popular to be. Uh, He graduated from Yale Medical School and spent some time in the military uh, and then returned to Boston where he did his uh, training, uh, completed his training and spent some time with the legendary Robert Gross, who is a pediatric surgeon there. that Any pediatric surgeon you talk to will know. Uh, In 1962, Dr. Cook, devoted all of his uh, clinical work to the care of children uh, with surgical conditions. And upon his retirement in the mid-1980s, this uh, lectureship uh, was named. So it's a pleasure for me to uh, bring Dr. Don Nakayama uh, or introduce Dr. Don Nakayama as this year's Cook Lecturer. Uh, Dr. Nakayama was recruited to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill by George Sheldon, which is the man pictured uh, in this photograph, uh, where uh, he was when I was a surgical resident. And Dr. Sheldon uh, was a real force in American surgery and had an interest in history, as you're going to learn this morning, that Dr. Dakiyama does um, as well. So uh, this is a picture that I enjoy because this was taken around the time that I was uh, an intern in, on the pediatric surgery service at the University of uh, North Carolina with Dr. Nakayama and uh, junior faculty member, Tim Weiner, who's also a good uh, friend of mine. So this is uh, my graduating class of uh, chief residents that I put up there for Dr. Nakayama, who he I'm sure remembers at least some of. Uh, but you know, Dr. Nakayama is really an extraordinary individual. He had an NIH-funded lab looking at uh, respiratory physiology. Uh, and as, uh, after leaving the University of North Carolina, had academic leadership positions at Mercer University, West Virginia University, before he finally settled back at uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So uh, it, it is with great pleasure that I introduce my friend and coll- colleague, Dr. Don Nakayama.
2: What a nice introduction! Um, thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Chris. Uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure being here uh, at in Hartford with uh, with all of you. Can uh, okay, I the first slide, or do I just advance it? I just advance it. Okay. All right. Uh, I aspire to do justice to uh, Dr. Cook and Dr. Cook's legacy. This is a great picture because it really shows what uh, surge is all about. It's the it's the joy of, of of life, of uh, of having a purpose in life, and a wife, and a life well lived with someone who's very important with you. Uh, the topic of my uh, talk today is the contributions of pediatric surgery to medicine. I have no disclosures. Um, the pediatric surgery is unique in that it has a foundational story, and the foundational story for pediatric surgery is the Halifax disaster in nineteen seventeen. Uh, it began in December morning. People were going to work. Children were going to school. It was clear. It was crisp outside. And two ships were in Halifax Harbor in the Narrows. And uh, the French munition ships, Mont Blanc, contained tons and tons of explosives. And the Norwegian relief ship, Emo, and they collided. And the uh, munition ship, Mont Blanc, caught on fire. Um, it drifted to the pier and the pier started to ignite. And of course that attracted all the people of Halifax to the windows and the windows at that time weren't made of any sort of safety glass. Of course, they're all plate glass. Um, and the crew of the Mont Blanc uh, abandoned ship. And that was a problem because they all spoke French and of Halifax, of course it was a, uh, the residents of Halifax were all English speaking. And so they didn't understand what was going to happen. I don't think that would have, Changed anything, however, because when the Mont Blanc exploded, it was the largest artificial explosion in the world until the Trinity atomic bomb test some four years later. Not four years; it's the uh, next world war later. It created tsunami, and the blast leveled downtown Halifax. Uh, it had a tremendous impact in terms of property, but also lives and injury. Uh, This is some shots of some of the damage to the buildings at some distance away. Windows buildings were shattered for miles. The anchor weighing tons of the Mont Blanc was found miles away. Uh, 1,000 was estimated to be killed instantly. The total toll was 2,000 dead. 9,000 injured, many of them children, and many of them with horrific facial and ocular injuries as a result of the windows of the area being blasted in while they watched the fire in the conflagration in Halifax Harbor. The toll was immense. And so the hospitals were overflowing with the dead and injured. Uh, there were severe injuries to the face and eyes and the doctors reduced to doing operations on kitchen tables using thread and torn clothes as sutures and dressings. It was a disaster of horrific proportions. Medical relief came from throughout Canada And in Boston, 29 doctors and 65 nurses volunteered and were ready, made ready to depart the following morning. And they were led by uh, 37-year-old William Ladd. They set up a hospital in the standing but windowless church. And William Ladd was in charge of mustering all those people. This is the image that we have of William Ladd, really a classic kind of Brahmin bearing. But this is the way he looked at the time, very young, very uh, energetic and quite uh, with the countenance really that predicted the great things in the future. Um, the legend about pediatric surgery was Lad was so alarmed at the widespread injuries to children at Halifax, they decided to devote the rest of his uh, practice from, his, uh, from then on to children. But the reality was that he was actually on Children's Hospital staff, visiting staff since 1908, some years, but some 10 years before. And he had already started to devote his practice and study to sur- study to surgery for children's conditions. And you may not be able to see that because of the small print, but this is his first report about indisception, that documented that there was a 90 to, 8, 90 to 100% mortality from indisception, And that's highlighted there. So he sat to devote to his entire practice to the improvement of the care of children. And this actually started before the Halifax explosion. He uh, decreased the mortality of intussusception from to 45 from 90 percent having it, which was a great advance at the time. He did the same for pylorostenosis at a time when pyloromyotomy was still a new operation. Uh, he uh, his biggest achievement. He has several achievements, but one that he has has his name to was figuring out the LAD procedure for malrotation at volvulus in 1932. He had operations for biliary atresia, for intestinal sorts of intestinal obstructions in the newborn. And finally, operations for Wilm- Wilms tumor, which we'll go over later, in 1938. So this, this entire corpus of work laid the backbone of pediatric surgery for the rest of, uh, really, for the rest of the century. Importantly though, he was the guy who really created the specialty of pediatric surgery, not only for general and thoracic surgery, but for all specialties. He was named surgeon in chief at Children's Hospital in 1927. He became full-time in 1937. Ladd is pictured there in this, uh, this famous uh, photograph of the Jones Hospital staff in 1939. He recruited Thomas Landman, do the same thing for urology. And he was, this, Landman was uh, Ladd's right-hand person He did the same thing for neurosurgery with Frank Ingram and otorhinolaryngology with Carlisle Flake and Donald McCollum in uh, plastic surgery that you see pictured there. Most importantly, however, was that he started to train the next generation of pediatric surgeons with this training of Robert Gross, who would be be his protege and his uh, mentee until they had a falling out surrounded by the PDA ligation, which I'll tell you about in in a a few minutes. And then Ovar Swenson. uh, that was back when uh, residents wore white, right? White coats, short white coats, white pants, and white shoes. But that's Ovar Swenson. So this is really uh you know, all-star photograph of pediatric surgery. So pediatric surgery has a tradition of being innovative and 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 contributing to really basic things in in, in medicine. And here's a partial list: total parental nutrition, which, I'm, being in Connecticut, you know are familiar with. The contributions of Stanley Dudrick, ECMO, cardiovascular surgery, multimodal treatment of cancer, non-operative treatment of solid organ injury—that's pediatric surgery in origin—and angiogenesis. And now there's one last thing, and that's diversity, equity, inclusion. So I won't go through all these. I'll just. Uh, mention some highlights and uh, and tell you a bit of the history of every one of those and the pediatric surgical contribution to each of them. Let's start with ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It started with John Gibbon and the invention of the first heart-lung machine. And the challenge there was how to sustain heart and lung function of the pump function of the heart with the oxygenation function of the, of the, of the lung. And to recirculate that back in the body while while a surgeon would operate within the heart. So what he came up with a machine that directly exposed a film of blood drizzling over metal screens and exposing it to oxygen. That's how he, that's how he oxygenated the blood. It worked, but it caused so much hemolysis that caused multiple, multiple organ failure when, it was, uh, when, a, when a patient was exposed more than one hour to the machine. But it was long enough to allow the first repair, intra-cardiac repair of a heart defect repair of of an atrial septal defect. His first operation was successful, that he reported in 1953, but his next two patients died and he forswore cardiac surgery ever since. But the concept remained alive and that uh, was with DeWall and Lillahi in Minnesota. They had an improved uh, oxygenation scheme where oxygen was bubbled through blood it improved performance, but still there was a four hour limitation because the damage and, and hemolysis induced by the, by the oxygenation process was just too uh, traumatizing for the blood. And the patients couldn't withstand it. Uh, this, however, allowed the development of cardiac surgery and the explosion of cardiac surgery is directly a result of this, of improved oxygenation and improved heart lung machine, pioneered by Richard DeWall. So, which brings us to ECMO. The challenge here was how to keep from doing so much damage to the blood and how to oxygenate the blood without it without it coming in direct contact with either air or whatever screening material that that, that you needed to agitate the blood enough to oxygenate it. So how do you separate the blood flow from the airflow? And an insight into that was by William Kolf. William Kolf was a developer of uh, dialysis machine, and he noted that blood coming out of the dialysis machine was bright red and it was being oxygenated. In addition to having all the waste material being removed from it, from the, from the, from the countercurrent of the dialysate, it was being oxygenated. And so Theodore Kolobar, which you see pictured at the left, tried to figure out some scheme by which he could have blood flow past a membrane and enter uh, an air, air interface without causing precipitation or without causing clotting of the blood, and he figured out that silicone was the answer. Silicone allowed transfer of both oxygen and carbon dioxide of the blood, and that was what he came up with. And an ultra-thin silicone membrane is still used today in the present-day oxygenators. That allowed prolonged life support. So whereas the the, the uh, heart-lung machines of uh, Lilahai and, and uh, DeWall allowed uh, uh partial bypass for four hours, now pa- patients could be sustained for days or weeks. And we have ECMO. So they were using these uh, ECMO schemes. This is like, <laughs> this is a vintage foot ph- photograph, as it turns out, because present day uh, membrane lungs are like a fourth of that size, right? But uh, this is in 1975. And then... Uh, Uh, they started to use it for patients who had acute respiratory failure. And the situation was ARDS after trauma. And uh, they were used successfully, but these are only case reports. And so a multi-center trial was made about ECMO for ARDS, Adult Respiratory Distress Syndrome. And at the end of this trial, they only had 10% survival for both ECMO and the control groups. In other words, as it was applied, it really didn't have any effect. So research on ECMO for adults stops for the next 15 years. But it was maintained by Robert Bartlett. Okay, And Robert Bartlett was a researcher first at UC Irvine and later at the University of Michigan. And he continued research and work on ECMO management. And he worked out cannulation, circuit and pump management, anticoagulation, team management to maintain these things. Importantly, having bioengineers available to make sure these machines continue to work. As they were prone to break down and he figured out that there is a patient population that would benefit from ECMO and those were neonates with respiratory failure so that was his great contribution he maintained ECMO through this dark period so respiratory distress syndrome no sadly enough this was it would not be appropriate for uh, infants with RDS but it worked for getting kids off bypass for cardiac surgery. And then finally, meconium aspiration syndrome and pulmonary, pulmonary hypertension, that was complications from sepsis and meconium aspiration syndrome. And uh, he, he started to get successes, okay? He started to get kids off bypass. And it, uh, he had a, uh, a unique way of studying this. It was a, it was a technique of randomization where each success increased the odds of choosing the next person the next patient for for the intervention. And he had this study where he had 11 consecutive ECMO survivors against only one death. And that proved the concept. And this was later verified by more conventional randomized studies. But this this established that ECMO could be used successfully to treat neonatal respiratory insufficiency. And he had a long-term survivor, right? This is Esperanza, the first survivor of ECMO. And this is her at age 21 years. So ECMO for patients of all ages, uh, randomized series studies confirm efficacy in neonatal respiratory failure. That was a Cochrane database system review of 2008. And then importantly, those centers that had ECMO and were used to doing ECMO for pediatric ECMO for near-drowning episodes and the occasional adult case were faced with uh, H1N1 influenza pandemic of, uh, what was it? 2009, right? 2009. And those centers had a case fatality rate of 34%, right? It was salvage therapy. It wasn't a randomized study, but clearly patients' lives are being saved with, uh, with ECMO technology. Okay. And that particular pandemic, in contrast to the present one, it was young adults that were being most effective. So that preserved the technology. And you'll see a graph that shows that and most recently, the COVID pandemic, the case fatality rate was 39% for all adults going on ECMO. So this is from the ELSO ed- registry. The bars, I think, are runs, the number of runs, right? The blue line is the number of centers and the different um, uh, different uh, uh, values on each ordinate. And you see that the number of runs and the number of centers is more or less flat. Okay, gradually increasing until this happens in the H1N1 pandemic. And then there's a explosion of centers because it becomes necessary to have this. If you're gonna have uh, a uh, critical care uh, center, uh, it's important to have this sort of technology. Otherwise you're not gonna salvage these patients. Okay, next topic, cardiovascular surgery. Let's go back a few years from from now, from uh, open heart surgery, and go back to Robert Gross in 1938, Uh, at the time uh, it hadn't been shown that an operation could change the physiology of the cardiovascular system, right? And so patients with patent ductus arteriosus would have heart failure from chronic right-to-left shunting or left-to-right shunting, Um, and uh, eventually they would either succumb to chronic uh, pulmonary hypertension, cardiac failure, or infective endocarditis, um, there, surgeons were interested in in ligation of ductus arteriosus, but it wasn't until 1938 when Robert e. Gross at the Children's Hospital in Boston uh, first did the operation. Uh, this is the uh, this is what you see. It's an older patient for sure. Uh, this also goes to show you the golden age of surgical illustration. Right, these are lovely photo- lo- lovely drawings that shows everything uh, without the you know without it is just very, very clearly. And it shows you the problem that they had and that you'd have a ductus that was quite stout. And the reality is, is that it's not a real, well, it is a real blood vessel, but it's not constructed like a, like a sturdy blood vessel. It's, it's, it's a blood vessel that was supposed to close but didn't and has remained open for one pathologic condition. And, and when you ligate it, it's always in danger of being torn. And anyone who does these, like Dr. Campbell has, Knows that that's always in the back of your mind. You know you're just just a just a hiccup away from from disaster, right? So it was with his heart in his throat. I'm sure that Gross uh, attempted the first ligation of the, of the of the ductus arteriosus, and he was able to do so. And the way he did it was uh, the diagram on the on the bottom. That's a probe. That's not that's a surgical instrument. That that's a probe. It's not a clamp or anything. And that's a silk tie that's being passed behind it. Um, and he doubly ligated and, 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 and it worked. The backstory of that is that he did it in August uh, as a chief resident. The chief resident at that time had, had pretty much carte blanche to do whatever cases he wanted to do. And, and, this, and the attending staff was then known as visitors, as they still are in Boston. And the visiting staff would be invited by the chief resident to staff the case. Well, the, 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 he was still a chief resident. He was still a trainee. Right. And, uh, and he had specific instructions from Ladd, his boss, the chief of surgery, right. The first pediatric surgeon, the first pediatric surgeon that he was not to do it without him being in town. Well, I was at a time when, when, uh, attending surgeons took the entire month off of vacation. Right. And August was August was, uh, his, was his month to be off on vacation. And, uh, he was at the cricket club when he ran into Gross, and I guess that was back at the time when residents would be and would also be at the cricket club. And uh, Lad asked uh, Gross, "You know how are things at the hospital?" And uh, Gross had done this epic-making operation, and uh, Gross said, "Oh, nothing much." And uh, that that lie and that that misdirection earned Lad's ire. And when Lad got back, he found out what happened and. Uh, summarily fired Gross. Now, at that time, Ladd was approaching into retirement, not not quite retired, but he's one of these guys that hung on like certain surgeons that shall go unnamed, myself specifically, and uh, and and Gross obviously was the understudy, and he was destined. And now he had this world famous operation, um, but uh, the board of directors of the uh, Johns uh, Hospital preserved his position, delayed. Uh, Gross's ascension to be uh, Surgeon-in-Chief for two years uh, uh, after uh, LADS retirement, Gross, re- Gross assumed the position as Surgeon-in-Chief. At any rate, Gross, I am certain, had the problem of the artery being torn because the artery sometimes are is wider than it is long, and simple ligation is not going to work. And he was confronted with the necessity of clamping the Clamping the ductus, double clamping the ductus, and then oversewing it, and there's very little space there. Okay, and the traditional clamps used in use in surgery were too traumatic; they were too sturdy, right? They tended to the crush the tissues, and crushing tissues made it impossible to reconstruct later. So the challenge was how to do this, and he he used various various devices, but the bo- bottom line was that one needed to have a surgical clamp suitable. For vascular surgery, and that was the next challenge. So, history of vascular clamp: Gluck, a guy named Gluck, uh, had an ivory clamp that was secured by a ratchet. Carell, Alexis Carell, and Guthrie um, used bulldog clamps, rubber-shod bulldog clamps, and that's that's what they used for their experiments on vascular anastomoses. Earned Carell the Nobel Prize, uh, 1938. Gross started to use hemostats that he ground so that they. Uh, Surface was smooth and parallel, and rather than have a ratchet, he used rubber bands to make sure that the that the that the jaws of the clamp weren't weren't applied too tightly. So you can tell that uh, there was a great need for a suitable uh, vascular clamp, basically, especially since this. Uh, important group came up with the next operation, next important operation. The first operation was PD ligation, then coarctation of aorta, and now it's uh, operation for pulmonic stenosis and tetralogy of fallot. And the woman in the middle is uh, Helen Tossic. And Tossic was an interesting cardiologist insofar as she was nearly deaf. And it, it was only because of her intimate knowledge of congenital heart disease. She had an entire museum full of hearts and she knew the history behind every one of the hearts. And she would make the diagnosis with whatever she could hear and whatever she could palpate on the child's heart and the difference in pulses. It was just really, really awe-inspiring. But she figured out that for pulmonic stenosis, the real key was getting blood mm-hmm. back into the pulmonary circulation and to create a ductus arteriosus, in effect, right? If you increase the blood flow through the lungs, then that would be a palliative operation for to flow. She actually presented this to Gross, and Gross kind of sniffed and said, Yes, I've done this operation because he had practiced a ligation of, of a patent ductus arteriosus on dogs in which he had anastomosed the subclavian artery to the pulmonic. To the pulmonary vein, um, to the pulmonary artery, in effect, the same operation for a blaylock toxic shunt. But he had done this in dogs to practice doing ductus arteriosus in preparation for his great operation. But he said, you know, uh, ma'am, I'm in the practice of ligating ductuses, not creating them. And uh, therefore, we don't have the blaylock gross shunt. Instead, we have the blalock toxic shunt, or the to- gross toxic shunt, right? gross toxic shunt. We have the Blaylock tosic shunt because Blaylock, the gentleman on the left said, you know, we had this dog model. We tried to create in, in his lab and his lab was led by this gentleman, Vivian Thomas, a black lab tech who couldn't get into medical school because of his race and got a job as a lab technician for Alfred Blaylock in, in Vanderbilt. And Thomas created a left the to pulmonary artery anastomosis in, in their experiments on pulmonary hypertension. They couldn't induce pulmonary hypertension with that, but that was exactly the operation that was created. And that became the blood taussig shunt for pulmonary stenosis. So what they use the rubber shod bulldogs clamps. And because the pulmonary artery was so deep in the, in the chest, Fabian um, Thomas created a vertically oriented special clamp to do that, to, to do that operation. And that's it. That's the vertically oriented clamp that you see on the cartoon uh, off to the right, right right of the right of the screen. And it uh, clamped off the pulmonary artery. The others were just uh, held held shut with uh, ties. And then with bulldog clamps, you brought things down and you tied around the bulldog clamp to make the anastomosis. Well, uh, that was great because it was the you know it's the first palliative operation for a congenital congenital heart disease. A huge operation, right? People made movies about it. Uh, But the geography of having a clamp physically in physically in the in the field was a problem. So it was left to this gentleman, Willis Potts, to create the first vascular clamp. He had an interesting background. He served in World War One. He practiced in Chicago and served in World War Two. In his billet in the South Pacific, he had Ladd and Gross's textbook on abdominal surgery in infancy. And uh, he aspired to be a pediatric surgeon. So he was appointed surgeon-in-chief at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago in 1945. Then he went to Boston for three months for his fellowship at age 50. So it's never too late, right? And he embraced congenital heart surgery as it was, the ductus arteriosus ligations, and the uh, coarctations. And he knew that you need to have some sort of way of controlling the blood vessels while he did operations on them. So he came with a POTS vascular clamp, and there was a need for a clamp that securely held a large vessel without slipping, without crushing or damaging the vessel. And he noticed that there was a special Mm -hmm. instrument that the plastic surgeons were using that used pins to hold a sheet of skin graft open and without damaging the edges. And so he had maximum use of the the skin graft. Uh, And he saw that he could do the same thing with vascular. Uh, with uh, vascular structures, so he teamed with the instrument maker Bruno Richter, who designed a clamp with fine interdigitating teeth that closed only to the point of contact and no no firmer. But that did the trick, and he had long handles that could be angled to fit the contours of the field and be out of the way. And that's what the vascular clamp. That was the birth of the vascular clamp. This is a figure from uh, from the uh, original publication in 1948. These are the vascular clamps that are employed in the Korean conflict. And that was that is credited with the birth and the popularization of vascular surgery. Uh, vascular surgery uh, really had its, uh, not its start because it obviously was, it has, a, has a long tradition, but modern vascular reconstructions, material reconstructions, uh, grew out of the experience of surgeons. A surgeon uh, a surgeon serving in the medical corps in the Korean conflict and reconstructing arteries using this exact clamp and that's a cartoon from a later publication analyst a surgeon that shows exactly how they're employed and they could be shaped in different shapes and his inventive wasn't restricted just to clamps it was also the pots Scissors, the one are the one that you're most familiar with is the arteriotomy scissors to the right, in which you can it's vertically oriented and makes fine exact cuts into blood vessels. Crazy. Okay, next. Not to change subjects too radically, but let's go with multimodal treatment of cancer. And we're talking about Wilm's tumor. Max Wilms, surgeon and pathologist at University of Heidelberg. He uh he, didn't, he wasn't the first to identify the Wilms tumor, but he was the first to identify its characteristic histology, okay, the triphasic histology, and the fact that it was unique from other inoperable sarcomas, and you could take it out. Right? And it was possible, perhaps, to cure it surgically. So there are progressive advancements in care, starting, of course, with Ladd, who uh, was able to have a 0% operative mortality. And with the 0% operative mortality, the mortality the survival from tumor was still about 30 percent right so there, obviously something more had to be done. Uh, he teamed with uh, Edwin Newhauser, a uh, radiologist and they uh, combined surgery with post-operative radiation and improved the survival to about one half or 47 percent. Each of them had a junior associate. Uh, Gross had Judson Randolph uh, who had become a uh, chief of surgery at the uh, Children's Hospital in Washington D.C. and Edwin Newhauser had uh, Giulio D'Angelo, uh familiar known as Dan, uh, who uh, was the original radiologist in the Wilms Tumor Study Group. Uh, importantly, they started a registry to track results and identify risk groups, and this really was the start of the uh, uh, children's uh, uh, study group, Wilms Tumor Study Group. They had the foundation for prospective trials. Uh, this was the era of uh, chemotherapy. We talked about that a little bit at dinner last night, right? How Yale was the first place where they did uh, chemotherapy, right? They used nitrogen mustard. The same nitrogen mustard that was employed in World War I was tested against tumors and famously employed against a man with lymphoma, asphyxiating lymphoma of the neck uh, up in Yale uh, uh, after the war. Well, Salman Waxman was a microbe hunter, right? And he was interested in discovery of antibiotics. And so he, he, he tested every soil organism that he could find and tried to figure out if they had antimicrobial uh, uh, efficacy. So he just went and tried to figure out every soil organism they could find. And then he f- discovered ectinomycin from the soil in 1940. Well, it was, it was toxic to, to, the, to, the, to the lab animals, and so he kind of set it aside. But his triumph was streptomycin in 1943 and neomycin in 1948, streptomycin being the first effective antibiotic against tuberculosis. And for this, he received the Nobel Prize in 1952, well-deserved. He knew that Sidney Farber was interested, though, in, in, the, in the white cell uh, toxicity of the various a, uh, antibiotics that he was testing, and so he gave it to uh, Sidney Farber. And uh, Sidney Farber found that it was active against implanted tumors in mice. He was really looking for a chemotherapeutic agent for leukemia, but it appeared to have activity against not only leukemia, uh, not against leukemia, not against leukemia, but Ewing sarcoma, Hodgkin's disease, and importantly, Wilms tumor. Now, uh, Sidney Farber's associate. Sydney Farber was a pathologist. He had an associate, a junior associate named Audrey Evans. And Audrey Evans was his person there and, uh, and, uh, on the clinical side. And Danjo and, uh, and, and Evans teamed up to study these, these uh, the chemotherapeutic effects in children. And they found that actinomycin D potentiated the effects of radiation. Uh, Danjo found that, uh, that erythema from x-ray therapy appeared at a much lower dose than a child who had received actinomycin D, and that signaled that they had a potentiating factor. And so the triphasic, trimodal therapy of surgery, x-ray therapy, and chemotherapy really started with these studies. And the rest is really history. The National Wilms Tumor Study Group has started, it involved more than 250 centers. They enrolled 70 80 percent of all the children getting Wilms tumor every year in the United States. And you see the survival in the graph to the right. Okay, it started off with gross, with 30% survival around 1930s. And it's since improved successfully so that you have almost uniform survival for Wilms tumor uh, by, uh, by, the, by the turn of the century. Um, they did four randomized trials, prognostic factors study completed in 2003 and emerged with other groups to form a single organization the Children's and college Group in 2001. So it's really a triumph of, of uh, you know, multidisciplinary studies, multidisciplinary treatment. Uh, Angiogenesis. Angiogenesis uh, is pediatric surgery only in only so far as that <laughs> Judah Folkman was a pediatric surgeon. But we'll take credit for him, right? Judah Folkman, uh, a giant, right? He's a shame he'd never won the Nobel Prize. He certainly certainly deserved it. His father was a rabbi, and with his father, he would, uh, Judah Folkman, would visit sick members of his father's congregation. He was brilliant. He developed an early pacemaker at Harvard as a medical student. Uh, While he was in the Navy, he invented sustained release of drugs, and uh, that's still in use today. That technology is still in use today with Norplant and the various uh, uh, endocrine suppressing agents. He perfected techniques of cell culture because he needed to figure out how to uh, whether, how, whether his uh, compounds had angiogenic or anti-angiogenic activity or not. So he perfected techniques of endothelial cell culture. And uh, when it came time for his appointment as chief of surgery at Children's Hospital, he decided they better train Judah Folkman in pediatric surgery. So he spent three months with C. Everett Cooper in 1968 and took over at Children's Hospital at age 34. That's a fast track. So angiogenesis research, uh, he figured out that using canine thyroid glands that tumors would grow, culture tumors would grow only to about one to two cubic millimeters and then stop, but they were implanted into a live animal. They uh, recruit their own blood vessels and grow a thousand times larger. And then using his, using his, uh, his, his assay, using his technique of drug eluding silicone impregnated uh, bits of, uh, bits of silicone, he could figure out which compounds promoted angiogenesis and then stopped it. And his overall hypothesis was blocking angiogenesis thereby can control tumor growth. And that turned, that turned out to be a tremendous insight that uh, that really determined a big chunk of human biology. Right. So that's what it has. You only have different different, angiogenesis factors starting with basic fibroblast growth factor in 1984, then a whole bunch, of, bunch, whole bunch of others. This is a dated slide, obviously. But this comes from Judah Folkman's presidential address to the Journal uh, to the uh, American Pediatric Surgical Association, and published in uh, JPS in 2007. The tragedy, of course, is that he would die one year later. But he figured that angiogenesis, just like inflammation and neoplasia, was an organizing principle of biology. In other words, it was one of these fundamental things that explained phenomena that appeared to be unrelated, but really were united by angiogenesis. And so all these things that have a basis in angiogenesis really uh, were linked by this, uh, all these disparate diagnoses were linked by angiogenesis. And diseases that are driven by excessive angiogenesis may be treated by anti-angiogenic compounds. So you have all these compounds that block angiogenesis, and you have just in 2007, gosh, 15 years ago, right? This is a partial list. I'm sure that the list is, goes far beyond that now. So pediatric surgeon contributing to medicine. DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. What can I say about this? Well, everyone is concerned about your genetic heritage, right? This is 23andMe essential part of your health picture right there's this morbid curiosity i was no i was not immune to this uh this is my uh upbringing as you can see my kids say that this is a a fine waste of 100 dollars. <laughs> so this is me you know i'm i'm japanese news flash <coughs> but uh, I've also worked in the South, right? And so, you know, you, you, you're fascinated by the, by the place that you're in and, and the South, specifically Georgia is no, no, uh, no exception. And many of you, I'm sure, have read this great book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Perhaps you've also seen the movie, Clint Eastwood movie. And one of my favorite lines, of which there are tons of favorite lines, is this. If you go to Atlanta, the first pe- question people ask you is, what's your business? In Macon, they ask, where do you go to church? That's absolutely true. <laughs> where do you go to church? And Augusta, they ask you your grandmother's maiden name because everyone wants to know of your lineage. But in Savannah, the first question people ask you is, what would you like to drink? And so that's the that's that's the great thing about um, Georgia. That's your next vacation, <laughs> Nicole. For pediatric surgery, it's where did you train? Okay. What is your what is your surgical DNA? And it's because it's simply because. We, nearly every pediatric surgeon can trace their background all the way back to William Ladd. And then we do it with pride because, you know, here's their tradition, right? It's all about innovation, it's all about these fundamental contributions to surgery. And yeah, hey, from Ladd to Gross to Ron Cook. From Coop, from Ladd to Coop to Folkman to Philip to Don Height. And then Clatworthy and Kottmeyer and Rich Weiss. And then Clatworthy, the Mark Road. This is the Arkansas connection, right? The famous Arkansas connection. Sam Smith, which I'm sure a lot of people here revere. He was um, he was not my first fellow, but he was the first fellow I worked with when I was a junior attending at Jones House of Pittsburgh. And then Christine Frank. Okay. So that's the deep connection that we have there. The, Arkansas connection gives us Brendan Campbell and then a very robust branch of pediatric surgery goes through Judson Randolph. Okay. Uh, If there is ever a more popular figure in pediatric surgery, there is none. Okay. uh, Judd Randolph then Peter Altman, Tom Tracy, Chris Brewer, and Christina Rader. Right, Christine out there in the ether. Okay. The Arkansas connection gives us Jim Healy and then a little bit longer branch. Jay Grosfeld, Michael Skinner, Diana Deeson, and then Nasi Nod. Okay, so you got a tremendous background here, and um, so this is why surgeons stand with pride in these in these group group shots, which you've seen. I've seen you. I know you've seen a bunch of them. Uh, as I describe some of the people in this in this photo, take a look, close look, and see what you're seeing. Okay, and how this is different. This is somehow different. There's Gross, okay? It's front and center, kind of. And then Luther Longino, who started pediatric surgery in Alabama, right? At Birmingham. And then Bobby Allen to the left, Bob Isant uh, in the front row, and then Mort Woolley in the top uh, top right-hand corner. Allen, Memphis, Isant, Cleveland, Mort Woolley really in Los Angeles. All these are seminal figures, just like Cook is in Hartford. But the one person who really is the, is the next branch, next significant branch of pediatric surgery from this group at Boston Children's Hospital is this here, this person here, Benji Brooks. And Benji Brooks is really the person that uh, women in pediatric surgery identify with most closely because the Benji Brooks Society is the organization of women pediatric surgeons and one of the biggest uh, sub organizations within the American Pediatric Surgical Association. Uh, The other, Uh, important figure in uh, women in pediatric surgery is this person, Leslie Schnaufer, uh, Louise Schnaufer. And Louise was uh, Coop's right-hand person for years and years, decades and decades. And uh, this is her and Coop with uh, uh, conjoint uh, conjoint (laughs) conjoint twins that they separated at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. OK, Ed Hatches in the background. So the, the Hartford women in pediatric surgery comes from a very, very robust kind of tradition. Okay? okay, That includes Rowena Spencer. Actually, she was Coop's first fellow, Okay, Rowena Spencer. And she started pediatric surgery in New Orleans. And then Benji Brooks in Houston, and Jesse Turnberg in St. Louis, and Louise Schnaufer, that was that we talked about but also Pat Donahoe, a giant in pediatric surgery and surgery and science in general. She'll be getting, she'll be getting the um, Jonasson Innovation Award at the Clinical Congress this year. So she'll be honored for her achievements in surgical science. Kathy Anderson, who um, was the first woman president of the colleges, American College of Surgeons, and Diana Farmer, who's uh, the first woman president of the american surgical association so this is a very robust group of women and i it's it's hard to imagine especially with a more productive and prouder group of surgeons than women in pediatric surgery but here's someone who didn't match okay and i understand she was here recently and that's andrea hayes right andrea hayes she went to dartmouth medical school she did a residency in East Bay UC Davis with Claude Organ. And being in a not only a, a community uh, training program, but a community training program that had just started, uh, was kind of like it would be the kiss of death in, in getting a uh, fellowship in pediatric surgery. So Claude Organ and Andrew had set about to bolster her resume. Uh, she was inspired on pediatric surgery during rotation at Stanford with Steve Shockett. And uh, despite the odds, you know, Dr. Organ said, yeah, go ahead, go for it. And so she assigned her a two-year research uh, fellowship in molecular biology at at UCSF. All these programs are uh, in California. And she didn't match. And she didn't match again, okay? In the meantime, she spent two years in pediatric surgical oncology at St. Jude's in Memphis, and spent one year at MD Anderson. So she was marking time like a lot of Apply, uh, applicants do, right? You just you just got to spend your time while you're trying to trying to get into a fellowship program. And she didn't match the third time. So Dr. Organ started to call around, okay? And he had some moral authority, as you can see here. He was president of the American College of Surgeons, would be president of American College of Surgeons. And he says, what's up? And one PD was a uh, program director, was was amazingly candid. And that Hayes was qualified, but that PD did not want to match the first black woman in pediatric surgery. Wow, right? So she gets a position in the hospital sick children in Toronto, okay, and that's, if you look back at surgical history, Canada is the place, not only was the terminus for the underground railroad, but it was also a place where black, uh, blacks could get a medical education, right? And so University of Toronto has a tradition of, 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 of training black uh, american surgeons right charles shrew went to medical school at mcgill university so she's there in fellowship but she remembered a case while she was at st jude's okay and there was a 12 year old boy with desmoplastic small round cell tumor dsrct and it's a tumor that has bulky pelvic omental retroperitoneal tumors okay peritoneal spread from pelvis to diaphragm small miliary spread And it's it's a disaster and there's only about 100 cases a year and essentially has 100 percent mortality right and so the operation is just debulking a tumor and and throwing up your hands and going there are too many of these metastases everywhere in the abdomen up to the diaphragm down to the pelvis so you did just give total abdominal x-ray therapy systemic chemotherapy and the kid dies okay and so what do you do so in time modern fashion the attending says dr hayes can you break the news of the parents that we have nothing to give the kid. And so she said, there's got to be a better way. And so she attended a grand rounds at HyPEC for adults. And about this time, you're trying to wonder, okay, why does Nakayama come here? Why don't we have Hayes Jordan give this lecture, right? But she won't tell you this to this detail, because I've come to admire this woman like you wouldn't believe. Is HIPEC appropriate DS, DSRCT? And everyone said, forget it, Andrea. The leaders in pediatric oncology said, don't do it. You don't want to do it. Not enough cases. The technology is difficult. Never has been successful in children. So she said, well, maybe. So she decides to learn the procedure and try it out, right? And then the IRB said, well, you know, you got to be careful. You got to have the adult surgeons help you. And she had to figure out what dose of chemotherapy. They're unknown, untried. What do you use? How much of a dose do you use? How much do you give? How long do you give it? And the first case is all renal failure. And then the IRB shuts the trial down. So and this is the tumor only 100 cases in the U.S, and you don't get all of them, right? It's not like breast cancer or colon cancer where you have, you know, you, you have a protocol and 100 goes here and 100 goes there, and then six months later, you figure out which is better, and then you take the next branch. One case at a time. And so she had to figure out one case at a time, intraperitoneal chemotherapy dosing. She had to figure out how to avoid acute kidney injury, and believe me, having taken care of a lot of these kids, you have to watch it, OK? It's a unique pathology, as opposed to cherry picking, where you have Mets everywhere and you just kind of take out the Mets one by one by one. And then, per personally, you have up to 100 Mets, like you have with ovarian and adult cancers. That these cancers DSRT are small, flat, and mill right? And they actually go beyond what you can see, and so the entire peritoneal surface has to be removed. And tirelessly, really tirelessly, some of these operations last over two days. Over two days. Um, she gets an 80% three-year survival. So this is an important part of pediatric surgical heritage as well, right? She now has a personal experience of now than 200 cases, including one here. And now she's UNC Distinguished Professor. She's on the National Cancer Advisory Board, Child Cancer Advisory Committee of the American Academy of Sciences. She's section editor for the Major, major uh, journal of surgical oncology, the Annals of Surgical Oncology, and she's president of the Society of Black Academic Surgeons. And watch this space; she'll be president like Oregon and Lasalle Fall were of the American College of Surgeons and beyond. So she really belongs in this tradition, right? William Ladd figured out something that was uniformly fatal in terms of the secession, and then later Malrotation virus, <laughs> Robert <laughs> Gross uh pain Ductus arteriosus, Lester Martin, Ulcerative Colitis, and Andrew Hayes with this thing. And she's really our link to these great, uh, great figures in pediatric surgery. You know, when I see this picture, I, I'm reminded of the Sesame Street jingle. Some one of these things don't belong with each other, right? And and the answer to that is, they all belong to each other, right? This is this is our this is our link to the past. So blacks in surgery, there's Daniel Hale Williams, the first uh, fellow of the American House of Surgeons, first one to organize a hospital for blacks. Lewis Wright, who set the agenda for uh, not only for uh, integration of medicine, but integration of all American institutions. He was the first director of surgery at Harlem Hospital who was black. Charles Hsu, who figured out plasma storage and was director of the first American blood bank. LaSalle LaFalle, the giant pediatric surgery, the chair of the Department of Surgery at Howard University, and really the moral leader of not only Blacks in surgery, but, but surgery period, Claude Organ, who we mentioned. A.C. Yancey, who, who uh, did the first pull-through procedure for Hirschsprung's disease, an adult at the VA hospital in Tuskegee, Alabama. L.D. Britt, who created the specialty of acute care surgery. And now Andrew Hayes. So this is the other thread that we have in pediatric surgery. So this is us, UNC Division of Pediatric Surgery, and you see that DEI is alive in pediatric surgery and academic surgery, and American surgery. And we have a shared heritage, right? We're all linked at lad. We're all linked to, through Andrea, to the great giants of pediatric surgery, and. Uh, that's that's the face of the future. Of pediatric surgery. So, the heritage is with Dr. Cook and Dr. Hyde and Dr. Weiss and Dr. Fink and Dr. Campbell. And the future belongs to really Dr. Nod and Dr. Rader and Dr. Healy. This is uh, this is the story that I have, and it's uh, it's a great specialty. We've done a lot. We've done a lot in a hundred years, right? From 1917, the Halifax disaster to now, and and we're entering the next century. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's both rewarding and fun. So thank you for the honor of being your uh, 2021 Ron Cook lecturer. This, I just close with this, this shot of <laughs> Jessica Cooper. Jessica is uh, a refugee from Hartford. She was PA at Hartford. And I had great plans for her to help out with uh, pylonidal cysts, sinus, and abscesses, and constipation in my clinic, but uh, Dr. Hayes took her over and now she's coordinating all the HIPAA cases for UNC. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Nakayama. I have a couple of questions from the audience, or really mostly comments. Uh, Dr. Zellneritis, who heads up our pediatric residency, um, uh, says we all wore white in the 1970s at Boston Children's Hospital, so pediatrics also wore white. Um, Dr. Weiss, also, says that Bob Bartlett was a previous Cook lecturer here, uh, which is true. And he actually came when we started our ECMO program and gave me a lot of advice on how to start it. And um, it still was a, a fantastic resource the first two years into our program. Um, another generous man, yeah. Dr. Bartlett. Uh, definitely a gentleman. Yeah. Um, and um, Dr. Hayes Jordan, I'm sure Dr. Rader will share the case with you. Dr. Hayes Jordan came and helped Dr. Rader with one tough case with a high PEC. Um, and uh, Dr. Schnipper is uh, our adult counterpart that helps uh, with some of those cases. Um, the lines are open if anybody else has any other questions and I'll turn it over to the audience here and anybody have any questions? If not, I have one. What are you looking for in the future with the training of the f- future of pediatric surgery? What are some of the attributes or thoughts that program directors should keep in mind while we're recruiting the next generation?
2: Do um, they hear the question? Do I have to repeat the question? Yeah. okay uh you know it's hard to say i think I think the thing that you can't get around is general affection for children right <laughs> you got to have that, and that's that 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 you think is a given, but when push comes to show when you see as many families in crisis as we see on a daily basis that's 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 what that's what you're looking for right someone who's we'll take that extra 30 minutes to an hour and just talk to the, talk to the family because they're, they're freaking out. Right. And someone who can approach kids and some, that's, that's something you only, you have to learn, but also you kind of have to be born with. Um, The other thing is, is that kind of reliability and honesty question. I think that's what all of us are looking at trainees, like whose word can you absolutely count on at two o'clock in the morning? Um, And then, and then finally, I think, you know, just, just kind of joy in surgery because there's going to be so many low points in training uh, because of, uh, you know, disasters, deaths, but also just the drudgery of having yet another consult come in at 4am in the morning when you're looking forward to maybe coming off at 7am and it being something, you know, something that requires some thought, effort, and, uh, and, 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 and some luck. Right. So it's uh, it's a, you're, you're looking for that. You're looking for that next colleague right? <laughs> who you can totally rely on. So it's uh, that, that that hasn't changed any.
0: Absolutely, I think with Dr. Hayes Jordan, what we note now in looking back at her history and her journey is the grit that she had to keep going despite all that adversity as she was uh, trying to get to her dream. And, and what I didn't mention
2: is is her motivation is is she she mentioned divinity at Dartmouth, mm-hmm. and she's she's a she believes in. She believes in Christ, and and she believes that her action is motivated by by God. So,
0: yeah. Um, Dr. Uh, Ratson um, says it's truly wonderful. Thanks. Did Gross and Lad ever reconcile?
2: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dr. Schreiber also says, uh, "Great talk. You haven't lived unless you are a pediatric resident at Boston Children's, as I was, and your attendings on the surgical rotations are Judah Folkman." Aldo Castaneda, and Peter Norwood. I survived, but barely.
2: <laughs> they're, they're, they're a force. They're, it's kind of, it's after alpha, alpha, and alpha. There are no other letters in the Greek alphabet.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For sure. Um, Dr. Kroll said, there's also a great lineage of African-American pediatric surgeons being developed through the Harold Amos Medical Faculty Development Program, including Dr. McLean at UNC, Sean Kunisaki at Hopkins, and others. And then finally it wouldn't be a grand round or a town hall or anything without a COVID question. <laughs> so if I could ask Dr. Salazar to uh comment on the Pfizer COVID vaccines for twelve to sixteen year olds.
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks for that question. Uh it, it the um, the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine is probably going to be approved over the next couple of days, I'm hopeful tomorrow. Uh, which means it will be under emergency use authorization for 12 to 15-year-olds. We are setting up the work use here for Connecticut Children's to reach to about 3,000 kids that are eligible because of being high risk. Um, And I hope you can get all your kids vaccinated as soon as possible so you can close the bubbles and create herd immunity. So Thank you for that question.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Nakayama. This has been a wonderful pleasure. Have a good day, everyone.